Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Good evening. This very special Halloween episode of Opera Box Score is broadcasting on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. We are streaming live on WNUR.org backslash pop-up, and we are available as a podcast on iTunes. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us for America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm Mathen Black, filling in for George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho. Tonight we go inside the huddle with composer Ross Crean to talk about bringing horror to the opera stage. But first, Oliver and I give you the rundown of our favorite spooky moments in opera, and naturally, you get all your opera headlines in the two-minute drill. And Oliver and I break down Third Eye Theater Ensemble's production of Nico Muley's Dark Sisters in our Monday evening quarterback segment. But first, Oliver, how are you? I'm very scary right now. Are you? Are you super <laughs> scary? Yeah, I'm very scary. Um, but yeah, uh, happy Halloween, everybody! Thank you for listening to this very spooky edition. We're like the Simpsons. Every year, we're going to put out like an extra a treehouse of horrors, <laughs> yeah, an, exactly. an opera box score of horrors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Oliver, are you like literally afraid of anything? Uh, heights, really? Yeah, and rodents. Like I'm ter- Oh, there's also those centipedes that look like gigantic eyelashes that are in your house. I don't know if you ever had. Oh those, yeah, I know what yeah. you're talking about. The yeah. leg, their legs are too long. It's They're, very strange. They look like gigantic, like um, cross. I mean, not cross dresser. A tr- trans uh, drag queen eyelashes. <laughs> God, you have to be politically correct. You can't say trannies anymore. That's not cool anymore. <laughs> Yet you just did, Oliver Camacho. I'm so scared of this because usually I'm at home. Watching TV late at night, trying to decompress when one of those things crawls across my wall. Of course, I don't do insects either. I, you know, I'm trying to be a yeah. grown adult and handling yeah. my problems. Yeah, yeah, but man, roaches, <laughs> spiders, mostly anything that flies or jumps is yeah. just really unsettling to right. me. So anything. I, I had a mouse problem when I first moved into my apartment, and I remember like I was cooking and like, I was probably like chopping carrots or something like that. And just a tiny, adorable little mouse ran across my counter, and I almost lost all my fingers. I screamed. I threw my knife up in the air, and I ran out of my apartment. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and all the way from down south, Math and Black. So, you know, fear does produce a lot of art. It's something that our mind Mm -hmm. likes to play around with. It's something that we like to flirt with, whether it's horror movies or painting or any type of sort of artistic endeavor. It's something that we like to explore because generally fear comes from the unknown. Opera is no exception to that rule. What are your favorite moments of horror in opera? Well, I was thinking about this because I am the creative consultant of this show. And I wanted to do something like this to make this episode sort of evergreen. And, you know, me, I'm a big, like, nerd about um, early music. And I was thinking about the rhetoric of fear and what is scary and what are some of the devices that have been used throughout opera to instill fear. And um, I think about, you know, for example, in the opera um, Per Se by uh, Lully, how um, the character of Medusa is played by a tenor, mm. and just you have this weird androgynous sound, and that 
was scary back then, you know, or, or even like in Aces and Galatea, you have uh, the character Polyphemus uh, who sings O Readier Than the Cherry. Mm-hmm. And it's an aria that most people have heard. And it's, we're like very cynical and we think it sounds really silly, but there is something really creepy about like a sopranino recorder juxtaposed against this, you know, basso voice, you know, just like that big, you know, it makes it sound like, you know, tiny little, you know, birds flying around this monster. And I just love stuff, thinking about stuff like that and like what makes music sound scary. Uh, to get to an example that I think more people are familiar with, I think when uh, Suzu- when um, Butterfly in Madame Butterfly, when Chocho-san wakes up from having spent the night, you know, waiting for Pinkerton and she goes to bed eventually and she gets up like sometime in the afternoon and she sees that um, Sharpless is there with some woman. And it's the first time that um, Chocho-san sees Kate Pinkerton and she begins to realize what's going on. And Puccini is brilliant here. And I mean, we know Puccini as his composer who's like really into strings and like everything is lush and rich. But when he uses silence, it is so great. And just it's basically percussion in this little scene. We're going to listen to about two-ish minutes. This is from the uh, RCA Victor Opera Series recording with Anna Mofo. Uh, this is really strange. Like Anna Mofo is really not a person you would expect to sing Madame Butterfly. But this recording under Eric Leinsdorf is fantastic because it's so closely mic'd. And it feels like you're listening to it like watching a movie version of it. So let's listen to a little bit of uh, Chocho-san uh, finding out that she's uh, not the only wife <laughs> of Pinkerton. Deep here. 
innocente ed ogni vostra sciagura perdonabile. Man, I don't know that anything shows stress like hearing an opera singer sing through a moment of terror and pain. Yeah. No, Anna Muffa was a great actress, and like I think she gets uh, short shrift because there were other great actress uh, uh, singers around, like Renata Scotto and Maria Callas before that. But Anna Muffa, in front of a mic, like she really, she really gives, and you just hear like that terror, you know, in her voice. And I remember the first time I heard this recording, I was probably like 17 or 18 years old and I was just getting into opera and I had a score from the library and I had, um, you know, a record that I borrowed from the library and I was sitting with the earphones and I wasn't really that into Puccini for the most part, but I remember getting to this scene and just being, oh my God, this is so horrible. And I had never, I didn't know the story. So it was like really, really fresh to me. And I know we're all so jaded now. We all know the plot of Butterfly and stuff like that. But if you are coming to opera for the first time, and you uh, are exposed to this show in particular, it is so horrible. And there are so many singers that won't sing this show, like um, Mila Freni. She recorded it, but she would never sing it on stage. It's too emotional. It's just too, you know, terrible. You it's know? like the the fatal attraction of the opera world. Yeah. So much craziness and so much sadness and pain. It yeah. drives people to do things that you wouldn't normally no. think they would. No. Well, let's move yeah. on to our next clip. One of my favorite things about theater and opera in general is that it allows you to experience the supernatural in a musical way. Um, Carl Maria von Weber's opera Der Freischutz is one example of that. And we're going to listen to a very famous example of his Wolf's Glen scene. For those of you who don't know the story of this opera, basically there's a gentleman who's trying to win the affections of a woman in his town, but he has a, a long stream of bad luck. He ends up losing a shooting competition um, to win her heart and to end up trying to gain the supernatural advantage over the competition. He gets tricked into making a pact with a demon named Samael to craft magical bullets. And this is the scene where we first see the Wolf's Glen, which is like this Germanic forest representation of hell uh, on a on another note a lot of european productions take a lot of liberties with staging this scenes you'll get people in black leather nazi uniforms bayonetting baby dolls you'll get <laughs> rabbits performing sexual acts you'll have oh. j- large insects anything you can think of that would be disturbing or scary will be staged as a ballet during this chorus music while the chorus is singing about calling down demons and everything that's going to happen. So let's listen to the way Carl Marie von Weber sets this kind of horror to music. Thank you. 
I'm so glad you brought chorus into this uh, because yeah, I think that chorus is one of the most effective ways uh, when you have, especially like the men's chorus sounding like they're like, you know, angry and or like ominous and then the women come in. And I don't know, I, I feel like chorus is one of the best ways to give like atmosphere and especially if every a lot of people are scared at the same time. I have to say, I, went, I just saw Lucia Delama more at the Lyric. Did you see it? I haven't seen okay. it yet. I'm going next week. So many opportunities to be scary in that show, not taken advantage of. Oh, <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Um, I am right now looking through my uh, phone to find the details about the recording I'm about to play because it is uh, also a chorus bit. This is maybe the most horrifying thing in all of opera. This is the finale to Dialogues of the Carmelites. I think I agree with you yeah. when you say that. Yeah, and what makes it terrifying if you've never seen this show is the use of the guillotine guillotine as actually an instrument like a percussion instrument in this and uh it's it comes what feels like at an irregular uh tempo so every time you hear it you're surprised to hear it and it's a very loud cutting sound and uh it is all the carmelites who are you know walking to their martyrdom and it starts off with a chorus of i don't maybe like 12 12 parts and uh, as we hear the guillotine come down, it becomes 11 parts, then 10 parts, then 9 parts. Yeah. Have you seen this performed? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah. It's, a, it's a little known fact, but the guillotine strikes are written into the score. Right. And the score comes with uh, instructions on how to make the instrument that plays them. There's basically a piece of metal with a wood base at the end that you can scrape a, another piece of metal, a machete, a blade, yeah. anything, down the line of the metal to create the screech. And it thunks into yeah. the wood at the end. <laughs> it's terrifying well, from my recollection this is a 2003 performance i think um blanche is played by um patricia Rossette, and the constance is heidi grant murphy this is 2003 broadcast on the met if i'm wrong about that please correct me but let's hear about the last two minutes of this opera i'm so sorry if you've never heard this before it's terrible <laughs>
Oh gosh. Oh. <laughs> just gives me chills. <laughs> it, the score is so Poulenc. Mm-hmm. It's so lush and beautiful. But then with that chaos and mm-hmm. fear and that visceral sound of metal mm-hmm. on metal. Mm-hmm. Yuck. <laughs> oh, oh, <gosh>. It's so <laughs> powerful yeah. and so terrifying while still being an uplifting piece of music. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that if you are a choral singer... You do a lot of church jobs. You eventually will come across Poulenc, and it's such great music. And it, you know, and then you think about how he used that throughout the show. And then every time you sing a Poulenc piece, he's like, "Oh my God, is there a guillotine around somewhere?" You know? <laughs> yeah. Instilling yeah. fears a hundred yes. years later, <laughs> exactly. or whatnot. <laughs> well, this next piece of music is one of my favorite things in all of opera, let alone in terms of like horror opera. This is from a 2011 uh, Glindborn production of Benjamin Britten's *The Turn of the Screw*. In this scene, we see the governess overseeing her. Um, what would you call it? Her Ward Miles and starts having a very strange, not quite all there conversation where he sings a song about the word mallow. Now, mallow is a homonym in Latin that means a few different things. Um, it has some boat references, but the two that we hear here very specifically are mallow, the word meaning bad or evil, mm-hmm. and mallow being the word for apple as well. Mm-hmm. Now, Britain writes a lot for children, and when Britain writes for children, it is always children in danger, (laughs) which can create a very tense situation. Um, And I think that heightened sense of protection for these children that we know will not come to good creates a lot of anticipation, a lot of anxiety for what ends up happening in the show. So let's listen to this piece of music. What I love so much about Britain and how, I mean, how he really was a a neoclassicist and how he is really taking stuff right out of the Baroque uh, and to use the oboe that way uh, as like a second voice, you know, and um, it's beautiful, but it's also very creepy because, you know, that that could be there could be text in what the oboe is doing, you know, and it could be. Uh, Quint, you know, talking in the ear of this kid and giving him this thing to sing, you know, like, oof, you know, 
the textures there, the oboe, the yeah. solo oboe, and then you get the harp, yeah. and you get the the um, dissonance in the strings. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is most unsettling about this is that Britain is undeniably the king of making the almost okay melody, yeah. where it, it <laughs> sort of lulls you into a, false, a yeah. false sense of security, yet there is still something twisting into your side yeah. because you know the music itself right. And there's is like not some interval right. that's like a huge surprise. Yep, there always. There's yeah. always a tritone somewhere, a turn. Yeah. that goes the wrong way that yeah. never lets you fully rest yeah. <laughs> no i love that um my last example um is from uh tales of hoffman which might come as a surprise there are plenty of scary things that happen in this show but uh i remember the first time that i heard the first act the olympia act that i thought that was actually more scary than the uh, dr Miracle act at the end of the first act uh olympia you know basically combusts and um you know hoffman finds the little the pieces of of her all over the ground and he is he is truly horrified by it but nobody else seems to be like the entire crowd were all in on our sort of the joke you know and because he was wearing the rose-colored glasses he didn't realize that he was in love with the doll and just the way that he uh is like screaming in like anguish and the chorus is just kind of like what's the big deal they're kind of laughing at him i find that to be terrifying it's like everybody else knows something that you don't know and they're sort of indifferent to your pain and they mock you (laughs) it's horrifying to me this is the jeffrey tate uh recording with uh, francisco reza as hoffman and ansel people and otter as niklaus and we'll hear just the end of ava lint singing olympia What does it say about me that like I'm afraid of people laughing at me? Like I make fun of myself all the time. I'm the most like um, you know self-flagellating or self-deprecating. But if 
I'm not in on the joke. <laughs> that is really terrible. Oh, so. I understand that yeah. so very yeah. much. It, may, it also makes me think of that scene in Rigoletto where yeah. he's acting like he's laughing yeah. so that everyone else thinks it's okay when it is not uh, okay. But that's a huge, you know, I think people would list the number one thing that scares the general population of America yeah. is public speaking, yeah. being in front of other people in yeah. a place where you could be subject to ridicule. Yeah. That also reminds me of like Court Johnny. Like the lead up to Court Johnny is so scary. So terrifying. <laughs> There's so many moments we can yeah. talk about more, yes. but we don't have time for that on this episode of Opera Box Score live on WNUR. Up next, Inside the Huddle with Ross Crean. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Oliver, do you know Ross Crean? You know, we are friends on Facebook, and I'm so fascinated by everything he's doing. And I know that he's in the middle of producing uh, Great God Pan, or just the, the, God- the Great God Pan, yeah. yes. And that it's getting picked up for recording by, Nax- by Naxos. One of Naxos's new music labels, absolutely. Yeah, so here's somebody that I didn't know that much about, like I'd say, a year ago. And now I see him everywhere, and he's really making things happen in Chicago. So I'm really impressed uh, but I don't know him personally, but we are friends on Facebook. So. <laughs> One of the things that's so fascinating about Ross is his sort of fascination with horror in mm-hmm. opera. He and I have had lots of conversations about horror in opera and what it makes it fun and what makes it scary. Mm-hmm. But Ro- when I say that Ross is a fan of horror, I really mean it. Mm-hmm. From the dumbest of the dumb, from the stupidest of the stupid, all the way up to the most sophisticated psychological mm-hmm. horror. And then he takes those influences and starts building other musical high art pieces with them so i sat down with ross a few days ago to take a nice little conversation to talk about his experiences in opera one thing you should know before we listen to this interview ross is a synesthete do you know what synesthesia is oliver uh that he senses things like like colors mean flavors or Mm -hmm. like numbers equal so ross actually hears in color it's something about the way his brain triggers with his auditory senses and that is has become a trademark of the way he composes opera we'll talk about this in the interview and how it can be very beneficial for composing in a horror genre so let's hear from ross crean ross thank you so much for joining us today Oh, thank you for having me. So I know you as a operatic composer, but I know that you have hands in all sorts of different art forms throughout the musical landscape. What, what else are you doing? What else invo- involves your art? How do you describe what you do? Uh, I actually consider myself a multi-genre performer and composer. So I've done a lot of film music, um, a lot of singer-songwriter stuff. I released several albums um, on my own record label. And then um, I perform a lot of avant-garde and new contemporary classical music um that i've written as well so it's it's kind of like doing like art performance um not really sticking to a specific structure or style um and a mixture of different vocal stylings and no i i basically just write and perform according to what my instinct tells me to do and sometimes that's going from like bel canto you know basso into 
no Celtic Shanos to much more folk style to straight tone to, you know, um, so very much kind of a hodgepodge of whatever I feel like doing at that point in time. Um, and honestly, that's a blast. I like having those, those lack of limitations when it comes to my own self-expression and, and, and to have, and to have projects, you know, that, that are trying to make certain points, you know, um, so that helps a lot. That helps me as far as my personal expression and my goal for, for what I'm trying to bring across to an audience. Yeah, and I, I know a lot of your work from a more experimental standpoint, which mm-hmm. is very fun for the conversation that we're going to be having today, which yeah. is talking about music and horror blended together. Now, I, happen, I happen to know you are a horror aficionado. When did you start taking those ideas about the emotional impact and like the titillation and gore of that horror and start incorporating it into your work as a composer? Um. I would have to say it was probably, I think it began first when I was, I mean, I you know in high school, I was kind of a goth kid and I'm definitely not that anymore, but, <laughs> um, I feel like it was, it was kind of doing all these like depressing ballads and trying to figure out like, as someone who's a synesthete, there was something really amazing, um, amazingly communicative to me about lower overtones and bass overtones and trying to do songs with electronics that um could emotionally recreate the things that i was feeling and thinking and so i was trying to work on these songs that like would recreate those those feelings that i was having and um and then when i got into college it was much more of just experimenting with soundscapes and honestly with horror soundtracking, it was, it's a genre that does really give you so much color palette for what is possible. And it's just a complete open field for experimentation and working with a lot of unconventional sounds and, you know, um, you know, trying, trying to make unusual sounds out of traditional instruments and different playing techniques that may, that might not have been thought of before. And, and it doesn't matter if those sounds are ugly or unconventional. Um, it's, it's about having the right combination that makes, that makes, uh, you feel what you're supposed to be feeling at that time. It's a bit of a programmatic thing for me. So, um, I, I like being able to play with sound and, horror was definitely a way for me to really just like play in this big empty open field of soundscape and just do whatever I wanted. So, um, that was the best thing. I think, I think, I think playing, playing the inside of of a piano is usually what will de-stress me most of the time. (laughs) So for, for people who aren't super familiar with either film scoring for film scoring for horror or other sort of like emotional soundtracking, things like that. There are a lot of extended techniques where you can play other parts of the instrument, where you can play with weird non-traditional instruments. I think the one we're most familiar with is like the coleño on string instruments, where you're playing with the wood of the bow Mm -hmm. rather than the string of the bow, which creates a very specific sound that can be very unnerving. What other kinds of things are you playing with when you're you're writing these kinds of soundscapes? Um, No, sometimes, well, especially, well, uh, especially on string instruments, it's sometimes about sliding upstream. Like, there's a lot of things you have to do with two hands. So in piano, there's 
a lot of times when I'm playing with technique with pitch as well as the timbre of what I'm trying to do where I'll have one hand starting on a point on the string and I'm either plucking or scraping or constantly hitting that string and sliding up or down. Um, also then like laying across like cotton sheets or sheets of paper or pencils or um, basically anything that won't, basically anything that won't fall through between the strings um, um, that, that will also like really play with the, the timbre of, of that strings like natural sound. So um, there's a lot of stuff like that. There's things like with um, chisels you can do with the string though. I, I honestly, I only recommend to use a chisel with the higher strings in the piano. Um, not with the lower strings. Um, but it's it's really cool to 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 press a, a chisel onto a string, and then as you are either playing a key or plucking inside, um, scraping up the string. And of course, like you need to be a really good piano tech to know how to do that without wrecking your piano, without destroying um, a two hundred thousand dollar instrument. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely you definitely have to have skill and know what you're doing um, in order to make those sounds happen. And it's not just going in and playing and know, you know, to hell with the consequences. You definitely need to know what you're doing and how that's going to affect your instrument after you've done that. So, yeah, you definitely need to keep those things in mind. But, um, like, just things like vibrato with, like, a bowed string. Like, instead of doing the vibrato with your left hand, doing the vibrato with your bow. Um, also, playing under the bridge is, is really cool, too. It makes a lot of, like, really, really cool effects as well. Um, and then just just a lot of like i there's this thing called martellato which is actually starting a bow as it's resting and then starting your phrase really suddenly where there's a, a really cool scratch effect um that then bleeds right into much more traditional sounding like melodic passages i think i think stuff like that is really kind of cool it's, it, it sounds like a like it's phasing from a scratch or, or a distortion tone into you know um a much more legato melodic tone. So the possibilities are kind of endless, you know, nowadays, especially. Oh yeah. And especially with what, what you have going on with electronic music as well, there's so much that can be, that can be done, especially in the horror movies from the early Hollywood age, the theremin was used constantly, which oh, is yeah. such a very strange ethereal sound. And now what, there was an, we were talking about an instrument the other day. Uh, remind me the name of it. Uh, the Ondes Martino. The Ondes Martino, which can also be used to create some very strange and ethereal effects as well. Have yeah. you written for that instrument? I have and I am. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, the cool thing about the Ondes is that it's it's a keyboard instrument with a magnetic strip just under the keys. Like um, like like um, so if like you're the if you're the player and you're sitting at a, at at the keyboard, the magnetic strip is like just at the end of the keys facing you. So you can start at one key and hold that key down while the other finger from another hand is sliding up and down that strip in order to pitch, uh, in order to, to bend the pitch like it would a theremin. But this way it's a little more controlled and isn't just relying on hand positions in the air mm -hmm. like the theremin does. So, um, But I, I feel like there's a lot more options too um, with the Ondas than there is the theremin as far as different sounds and timbres that you can get out of it. So, so we spoke about 
extended piano techniques and prepared piano techniques. Now, Mm -hmm. you have written a horror genre opera scored for two pianos, one traditional and one prepared. That's The Great God Pan. Yes. Talk a little bit about how how you built that tonal world and structure using that kind of creepy (laughs) instrumentation. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, the standard piano was obviously for harmonic accompaniment, you know, for, for the singer's sake and to help, you know, drive everything forward. Um, you know, the, 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 the biggest thing about the great God pan is that you, it's all about these two worlds that are coexisting at the same time and our, our material world and the other world where that we, that that's what we call the great God pan is this other world. And so we don't, we don't see that world in the opera necessarily, but, we see the results of that world happening through throughout the opera. And so the prepared piano and those extended techniques I use in that second piano very much are conveying and, and creating that world so that we can hear that with our ears as we don't see it with our eyes. Um, and for me, and I, and I picked, there was a, a specific pitch class of six pitches that um, for me as a synesthete, um, they gave off very different colors that I think, um, for me visually would have created that world really well. Um, a lot of like really strange floral colors and like just natural, just more natural colors, but like slightly off. Like a lot of our greens are slightly off. Like it's more of an alien world than anything else. So these six pitches are conveyed throughout that entire opera on the on the on the prepared piano and in the score i also color tint those notes so that our the pianist who's playing that part will know what strings that he is going to have to you know pluck or scrape down or or whatever so and and it's and it's different notation too there's a lot of graphic notation in that piano as opposed to the other piano which is just your standard notation um where we do have very pitch specific notation going, but as well, we have the color coded pitching as well as then um, approximate notation where we have a lot of graphics covering things like uh, portamentos or glissandos down the strings or rhythmic hits in the strings or um, slow scrapes or fast scrapes, things like that. So everything has, uh, has a specific symbol to it so that the pianist knows what they're going to play at that point in time. So much of what happens in these kinds of heightened emotional settings in horror operas has to do with creating a sense of dread in the hearts and minds of the people watching it. Absolutely. Being involved in the in the whole production process for Great God Pan, not only musically, but also involved with writing the libretto and building the drama of it, adapting the novel. How mm-hmm. do you engage the audience to build a real sense of uncomfortability and terror? Uh, you know, it's, it's really about bringing the right combination of sounds at the right points to know of the libretto of, of the story that's going on. And there's, there's points where it needs to be really subdued and, and really calm and very, and very normal. And then there's times where, you know, you really need to make the dissonance work for your 
emotional conveyance of what's going on at that time. So I would say it, it, it works programmatically as far as what you see on stage. The music needs to, to match that for sure. But I feel like with the overtone series that I use in, in the opera, it's going to be it's definitely going to be communicated to the audience um, about what's going on. So there's a lot of unsettling combinations that happen when they need to happen. And then there's times where they don't need to happen so that we can give the audience a little bit of their downtime to relax before we subject them to more, <laughs> to, to, to more chaos that's going on. And it's also, it's also, I mean, the, the point of the opera isn't just to scare people. It's also to bring forth a lot of points, which were, you know, we have a trans character, we have, Female characters who, in the story, originally were were not given voices. It was a very male centric story, and the men were speaking. The women did not speak in the, in the story in the original uh, novella. And when I started giving these character these women their voices, all of a sudden it brought a whole new view to what was going on in the story. And a lot of it is: Do we still know? Have we really progressed as far as how we treat and see women? than we did in the, in the Victorian era, or are we kind of in the same place? And um, I feel like gender is a huge thing in this opera as well. It's something that I feel was, was very important to touch on, um, basically because the role of women back then was to just be silent. And now we're giving women their voices to to say what 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 they want in this opera and 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 to actually be full presences in this opera and it brings a whole different element to it and i really just want people to walk away and and not necessarily have a clear idea of what they think about what's what i have said but just to have questions about you know have we progressed anymore what can i do to better to what can I what can I do to better think about the way that I treat women or view religious dogma or sexuality or paganism or how I view the you know the afterlife or you know all of these things I want to to raise questions about because I think it's something that's very important nowadays. All wrapped up in the beauty of a gothic novella. Yeah, you know it's really the best like. It's the best, like, mental minefield to me, honestly. Because you know there's something within those negative spaces of what's being written that just can they that you know there's something that wants to be conveyed but it's not being conveyed when you're reading it. And so I feel like something like like this, like, basing an opera on that is being able to delve more into the negative space and bring that out forward to, you know, the, the audience who's that's going to you know, watch and listen to it. So, and I want something that wasn't necessarily really important to have to watch as more as to listen. I mean, obviously the opera in its premiere is going to be a very, hopefully a very visual spectacle, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, we're recording it in December and it's, it's something I want a listener to be able to, to experience just through headphones, be able to get what's going on and, and to be able to know what's going on through the story without necessarily having to sit in a seat and watch it on stage. Ross, thank you so very much for that. Next up, the two minute drill. 
This just in, the two-minute drill. An audience member at the Metropolitan Opera sprinkled a powdery substance, what the police said may have been the ashes of his mentor, into the orchestra pit during an intermission of a performance of Rossini's Guillaume Tell, setting off a police investigation and the cancellation of the rest of that opera and a production that evening. The episode, which unfolded around 4.30pm during the second intermission of the opera at Lincoln Center in Manhattan, prompted the company to cancel the rest of the show and Saturday night's performance of L'Italiani in Algeria. The Met will reopen on Monday. Colleagues are sharing their distress at the death Friday of John Del Carlo, a well-loved American soloist who sang 285 performances at the Metropolitan Opera over the past 23 years. John played the title role in Don Pasquale, Dr. Bartolo in Il Barbieri di Sevilla, Swallow in Peter Grimes, Quince in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Matthew in Andrea Chenier, Colonel Frank in Deflator Mouse, Baron Zeta in The Merry Widow, and Alfieri in the Met's premiere of Bolcoms of You from the bridge. Opera America is delighted to announce that famous designer and beloved television personality Isaac Mizrahi is serving as the chairman, the honorary chairman of National Opera Week 2016, encouraging audiences to explore opera. Mizrahi states, the more you know about opera, the more you know about life. Opera is as important to me as sports are to other people. An opera season is like Wimbledon or the World Series. The power of great singing is more than any other physical effort and ten times as gratifying. That is the two-minute drill. What seems cool in there, Oliver? Well, not cool, but uh, John Del Carlo, that was mm. very sudden, and uh, I didn't know him as a colleague or anything like that, but I do have friends that do, and everybody's very upset about this. And I did see the Met broadcast of Marriage of Figaro just like two years ago, not even, uh, with Meta Majeski singing mm-hmm. um, The Contessa, and he was in that, and it's like, you know, He's he's out there singing like he's, you know, healthy and performing, and all of a sudden something like this happens. Like man, like Johan Bota, like David Bowie, Prince. Like yeah, we're losing a lot of amazing artists. Um, But also this strange thing with the powder, that is so bizarre, and I don't think it's ever happened before where they've canceled, uh, you know, two performances. Well, they did they had to cut the William Tell the last act and then they canceled the evening performance. I think the last time they might have done that was um when there was a blizzard um at the Met. Uh, like and maybe that was last year and like they couldn't people couldn't get in. And then there was that crazy suicide that happened in like nineteen eighty eight at Macbeth or something. But that is so strange and um, you know, have some respect for what we're doing. Well, and I understand, like, I I don't know anything else about this person, but can you imagine a violinist or a singer whose teacher dies and their last living request was to have their ashes spread at the Met? Sure, I get that. But maybe ask somebody and don't pour (laughs) ashy ashy white powder on the musician's heads during intermission. Oh, my. Especially in a a political climate like we have now. That had to be very scary for a lot of people. Our condolences go out to everyone involved. I mean, I was at opening night of Ryan Gold and opening night of Lucia, and I know that the lyric isn't necessarily a, a terrorist target, and like, but I was like, the theater was full, and I was yeah. thinking, wow, like, and then there are people that can't get up the aisles fast enough, and you just have to kind of stand there and wait, you know, and I just keep thinking, it's like, man, this would be the perfect place. 
for something like that, something terrible to happen because people move so slowly in this damn place. So, oh man, oh let's don't talk about horror in opera. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you think about Isaac Mizrahi talking about opera versus Wimbledon and the uh, World Series? We happen to be experiencing the World Series yeah. right now, yeah. two blocks north of where we're recording right now. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I like Isaac Mizrahi. Uh, I think that he's a fine enough personality, but I just wish that some somebody a little bit more. You know that can relate to a younger generation. I think he's doing fine, and I'm I'm a fan, etc. I love Project Runway All Stars, but there's got to be more people out there who are like that's Paul. Z- Z- what's his name? P- the the B- Bulls. The player? Bulls player. Yeah. I know who you're talking Pao about. Paul Zazol or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, get him. You know. But it's fine. Yes, thank you. We need gays because there's obviously none of gays. Not enough gays in music, in uh, classical music. No, yeah. we need some. We need to get like Katy Perry involved. We need a little Justin Bieber. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Do you think once uh, Barack Obama finishes his term as president that he can be the president of Opera America? Um, yes, absolutely. That's a great you know step up for him. <laughs> Those of you listening at home, <laughs> start the petition online to have Barack Obama exactly. be the head of Opera America. Yeah, hashtag for that one. So. <laughs> first, he led America. No, first, he now, was a community organizer. Yeah. First, a community organizer. <laughs> then America. Now, Opera America. That's true. That's true. It's the next big organization up. So, You're listening to Opera Box Score on WNUR. Next up, Monday Evening Quarterback. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Who made the grade? Here's Monday evening quarterback. Oliver, we had the pleasure of spending last night together. That doesn't sound quite right. (laughs) Oliver, you and I went on a date last night. Wait, that doesn't sound right either. Oliver, we were together at the opera. We were. And we weren't originally sitting together, but uh, we were lucky to have two seats available next to each other. So we we moved and it was really lovely. Yeah, we got to go to the prop theater and see Third Eye Theater Ensemble's production of Nico Muley's Dark Sisters. What did you think of the show? Well, you know, I tried not to read too much about it before mm-hmm. I saw it. As did I. But I did uh, hear that um, the score was not well-reviewed. But I also saw that Chicago Classical Review, um, the one of the main places to get uh, opera criticism in Chicago these days, was very enthusiastic about this mm-hmm. production. And they are really hard to impress. They're pretty brutal. Yeah. Uh, but I was like, wow. I mean, like, I remember I saw some Zumaida Zumai- song. Zumaida song. song mm-hmm. uh, at the prop. And I, was, I wasn't I was convinced that the prop was the place for opera. Uh, because I felt like Zumaida's song is like so, it's like almost like Cavalier Aristocana. Like, it's like so big, you know. And that that space is not great for loud singing. But um, I don't know if it was Rose Freeman, the director, or if it was Jason Carlson, the musical director. But everybody seemed to have scaled down their singing. And um, Jason was doing, like, adding strings and, like, organs. Synth sounds yeah. to the orchestra yeah. that was actually which, very It was powerful. an electric, electronic piano, which I'm typically against. But uh-huh. he, he made it work. He really did. And everybody was singing at the appropriate volume. And it was that I heard every single line of text. Which really got me uh, involved in the story, and it really made me appreciate the score actually. And um, I'm a, I was a big fan of it yesterday. I mean, I thought that there were some performances that were gut wrenching. Uh, Melissa Arning playing the role of oh god, I don't know her name. Ruth, I think is her name. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the opera is about um, like the FLDS, the 
Church of Latter Day Saints, Latter-day Saints like yeah, mm-hmm. and it was like a two thousand something raid on a ranch, and they took all the kids away. And um, four hundred something children yeah. were taken off of the compound, and so so these wives were you know lamenting the loss of their children, and that feels very much like it could be like Berlioz's Trojans or something like that. Yep. You know, it's like there was uh, already it started from a place that was super emotional, but uh, Melissa Arning, who doesn't have the prairie haircut, she has sort of like more of a boyish you know haircut. You from the start. You sense that there was something off about this character. I was the exact yeah. same way. I don't know Melissa. Yeah. And so I was watching her going, what's going on? Does she yeah. not know her music? What's happening? Yeah. And then I started realizing, no, something is wrong yeah. with this she's, character. She's off the rails. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for those of you who are going to see this show. But uh, her, I mean, each of these characters are really well developed. But her character development is like... It's heartbreaking. And I'm like, glad you mentioned that. I was I was so worried that with a show like this, with women who are all dressed the same, their hair is all the same, yeah. that you would have sort of like a a, um, a monochromatic view yeah. of character. But then as the story progressed, each of the women di- per- possessed a, a very specific and different personality. And the way they interacted with each other is really what made the drama of the show so powerful and Oh my God! A gigantic shout out to Angela Bourne, who played Lucinda, the the yeah, daughter, fifteen year old daughter, fifteen year old daughter, married off. Yeah. Every time she opened her mouth, what it was just art. The it's singing was voice. so like, good. Here's the thing, though. I have to say that when you scale your voice down uh, and you do a lot of recitation, you can sound very. I don't want to say musical theatery, but mm-hmm. like everybody begins to take on the same tone quality. Yes, and you really have to add the vibrato and add the volume for your voice to sound more unique. And thank goodness there were plenty of opportunities in this score for each singer to kind of step to the in the in the spotlight and show off what their voice can do. And this Kelly Hollis, uh, who was the principal character, um, what a fantastic instrument. And like you get, you know, glimpses of it throughout the show, but then she has like a couple of scenes where it's wow, it's it's a it's a quality quality instrument so there is an uh, an arioso moment maybe a, a larger aria yeah. portion that she gets to sing where she is angry with god yeah and she the entire thing is just her saying were you even listening to me yeah again and again and again and it was so gut-richingly powerful so i i'm a big fan of carla floyd's Susanna, but i think the recit- recitative in that show is so clunky yes and I loved how this opera made me think of Susanna and being like out in the woods. And like, there's a beautiful moment where this character that Kelly Hollis sings, she steps outside of the ranch and she's like looking into the sky and she's asking, you know, about God. And the set design was so clever. So it's a tiny little room, it's brick. The set was really well designed to give us a sense of claustrophobia. But then there was like this digital uh, painting in the background that changed like with each scene. And it changed into an outdoor scene. And it was just the perfect little touch. Beautiful. I mean, like, it g- gave the audience a chance to use their imagination without being so, like, literal about stuff. And so I was really impressed with the set design. And I was impressed with the stage direction. And there were some really solid vocal performances, especially Melissa Arning and Kelly Hollis. And I actually want to go see it again because there's a different cast. Yes. And I know some of the people in the second cast. And I want to hear how what they do with it. So the fact that I'm interested in hearing the show again is definitely... Uh, kudos to a third eye theater ensemble you know so if you want to go see the show see the show with oliver specifically you can do that 
Find him on Facebook. He'll go with it's you. It's next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, um, November 4th, 5th, and 6th, I mm-hmm. guess. Would it be? Yeah. At the Prop Theater, Third Eye Theater on some. I have to say before we leave this segment. Oh, did you want to say anything else about it? No, about, I think okay. you summed it very nicely. And I, I do. I recommend everyone going to see the show. Um, that it feels sort of like a companion piece to what Chicago Fringe Opera is doing right now. There is sort of like this girl power thing. I'm sorry that sounds so misogynist. But there's a girl power thing happening right now. Feminist in, empowerment, in, either in, or. In Chicago. Uh, with Chicago Fringe Opera doing this um, Missy Mazzoli piece directed by Amy Hutchinson and conducted by Kathy O'Shaughnessy. Um, so the women are like in the forefront right now of the uh, you know small opera movement here in Chicago. And the Fringe show is completely different. Like, whereas M- Muley is really referencing, you know, uh, you know, traditional opera form, uh, like you think a lot of Strauss and Britain and maybe even Belcanto because some of these scenes are feel very Belcanto. Uh, Missy Mazzola is completely working in a different uh, language, uh, oral language. And there's like electric guitar and, you know, things are very atmospheric and um, it is not, doesn't really have a clear narrative. It feels like if you were eating mushrooms or something like that, like you'd really, really enjoy the show. But the Fringe show is definitely immersive and you know, beautiful to be in the space and hypnotic, and the sound is completely original. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. So it's nice to see that there are two things that are very, very different, but somehow feel the same because of their, you know, feminist slant. I don't know if that makes any sense to you right now. Absolutely, yeah. Oliver. Thank you yeah. so much for that. Right. Well, that's all we have for tonight's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That is v o x e r shorts.com. For WNUR, our pr- programming director is Nick Anderson, and the general manager is Brock Stusi. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Search for Opera Box Score. Like our Facebook page. Share our posts and of course troll us on the web subscribe to our podcast on itunes soundcloud and stitcher leave a review and let us know what you want to hear more of on the shows to come our creative consultant for opera box score is oliver camacho i'm Mathen black asking you to continue the conversation about opera and hey try to throw in a statistic or two we're back next monday night at 9 p.m central don't miss it you're listening to wnur fm evanston chicago chicago sound experiment (laughs) 